The man who killed affirmative action in higher ed has now set his sights on big law. On today's episode, we talk about the future of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at law firms and about how just the filing of some litigation is already having big impacts. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So late last year, our sister podcast, Uncommon Law, hosted by the great Matthew Schwartz, did a four-part series on the topic of affirmative action at colleges and universities. It was a preview of sorts for a Supreme Court case brought by a group led by Edward Bloom, an anti-affirmative action activist who's been working on this issue for decades. As you probably heard, Bloom subsequently won his case and racially-based admissions policies are now illegal in higher ed. Matthew came out with another episode of Uncommon Law shortly after the SCOTUS ruling, and he included this clip from the triumphant litigant. Uh, My name is Edward Bloom. I am the founder and president of Students for Fair Admissions. Ed Bloom, who spearheaded this litigation, finding plaintiffs and shepherding it all the way to the Supreme Court, gave a brief press conference after the opinion was announced. We remain vigilant and intend to initiate litigation should universities defiantly flout this clear ruling and the dictates of Title VI and the Equal Protection Clause. That was back in July, and as it turns out, Bloom did remain vigilant, but against a different institution. Last month, just weeks after his victory at the Supreme Court, groups led by Bloom filed suit against the law firms Morrison & Forrester and Perkins Coie. The suits allege that the fellowships these firms use to recruit associates from diverse backgrounds are now illegal. For what it's worth, these two are ranked 38 and 42, respectively, in the most recent AmLaw 100 rankings, so Bloom is going after some pretty heavy hitters in the world of big law. Our newsroom has been covering this very closely, and today we're going to be hearing from two Bloomberg Law reporters, Tatiana Monet and Riddy Setti, about what's behind these suits and how, amazingly, the plaintiffs have already seen results from them in just a matter of days. But first, I asked Tatiana to tell me about the specific allegations in the suits against the two firms. Basically, Bloom's suit alleges that their diversity programs, their fellowships are unlawful. And basically, he's asking the court to permanently end these programs. And I mean, Bloom is sort of credited as the man who sort of engineered the downfall of affirmative action. So this, I think, kind of set a precedent for him and really opened the door into the private sector. But tell me about how these fellowship programs and these DEI programs at firms work. Uh, what, What do they do? Right. So these programs are, I would say, relatively common, especially at some of the bigger law firms. Um, I would say mid-sized firms also have them. These programs are essentially, you know, to fit a firm's diversity, equity and inclusion mission. So they're ideally, you know, looking for students who are part of some kind of underrepresented group, whether that is, you know, whether they're a student of color or they're a part of, you know, the LGBTQ plus community. And I get the sense that, A, they're trying to hire students from these underrepresented communities, but also they're providing stipends, too, to the to the students, right? Right, right. Pretty hefty stipends um, as well. So in a lot of cases, students are able to, one, get a salary from the firm. So they'll get, you know, contingent upon 
an offer of like a summer associate position and then they will get a fellowship or a scholarship on top of that that could provide you know maybe ten thousand twenty five thousand even fifty thousand dollars on top of their salary and really quickly we should get into what bloom is alleging here i mean it's i get the sense he's just saying that because these programs benefit people from one racial background over another that they are illegal is that the you know am i oversimplifying it or am i correctly simplifying it um you know i think that is pretty accurate essentially he's saying that these programs after the scotus ruling are now officially unlawful and unfair Typically, these programs will have a sort of um, eligibility criteria that sort of points to students from underrepresented groups. So essentially, these programs would be unfair to mostly straight white men. Right. Um, I have to admit, uh, you know, I was following the affirmative action case at the Supreme Court pretty closely. Uh, My colleague, Matt Schwartz, uh, did a really great series on uh, that whole uh, case. I have to admit, though, when the ruling came down, I initially thought it would just be limited to higher ed. Uh, And boy, was I wrong. Uh, Because as we just mentioned, Ed Bloom filed suit uh, just weeks after the ruling came down. Is there a difference between higher ed and a private business like a a law firm? So discrimination was never legal in the private sector. Yeah. So the decision really sort of just opens the door for more scrutiny. To jump into that, I think it's a very tricky question as to whether they're legal or not, in that it depends on who you ask. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission um, has been pretty firm in its stance that the decision doesn't make these programs inherently illegal. The EEOC has held that Universities are very different from workplaces um, in the private sector. And so this is now, I guess, the first wave of litigation that deals with that direct question. But as far as the agency is concerned, um, DEI is not illegal. Yeah. Um, Tatiana, I want to go back to you, though, because you've done some really great reporting about how the firms have responded to this. Two very big firms have already changed the way their programs work in response to these suits. Let's get into that. What have they done? two firms so far, and it's expected that more will follow suit. Gibson Dunn and Morrison Forster, um, they have changed the language around their diversity programs so that sort of the eligibility criteria is race and gender neutral. Um, So kind of embracing the language of, you know, this program is open to, you know, any student who is committed to um, promoting diversity. Yeah, not not a student from a disadvantaged background, but a student who is committed to promoting diversity. Right, right. Um, That's remarkable because, you know, when I think of legal action, I think of something that moves very slowly, that takes years to resolve. In this instance, Ed Bloom filed a suit and then like weeks later or not even weeks later, you know, these firm he got some results, <laughs> you know. Uh that that was that surprising to you? I think the pace of it was surprising, yes, but I think a lot of my sources 
were expecting it. It wasn't necessarily a surprising development, but I think a lot of folks in the uh, diverse legal profession um, were very disappointed by it, but it was expected. Well, and it's, you know, we should also note that there is one firm uh, that has been the target of Bloom's suits that uh, is not changing, or at least has not changed yet, and that's Perkins Coie. Uh, have they talked about that? Have they said, you know, we're not, we, we don't think the suit is legit and we're going to hold fast? Right. I mean, that's sort of essentially what they've said, yes. You know, they have said to us that they will fight the lawsuit vigorously. They still have the same language on their site. They have, you know, a a disclaimer that went up after the SCOTUS decision that sort of doubled down on the firm's commitment to DEI. So, yeah, Perkins Coie seems to be in in it for the long haul. Yeah, I guess we'll see how long long they can hold out. Uh, Riddy, let's turn to you. You did some really great reporting with uh, our colleague Corey Atkinson about how these suits are being formulated. And you guys found that a lot of these new uh, affirmative action suits are using a different statute than the typical civil rights suit. Can you get into that? What's what's going on here? Yeah. So uh, a lot of these lawsuits are using Section 1981 of the 1866 Civil Rights Act. 1866. That's yeah. a long time ago. Uh, civil War era statute, um, which is quite different in comparison to the more updated 1964 Civil Rights Act and specifically Title VII, which a lot of these claims generally fall under. So we've got Section 1981 uh, from... The 1800s, when people were wearing, you know, stovepipe hats and mutton chops, uh, as opposed to Title VII, which is the newer statute. Right. Um, why? Why? Why are these suits being filed under this much older statute? What's going on here? What's the reason behind this? Yeah. So there's a couple of theories. Some attorneys believe that part of it is just to expedite things. Um, when you go through Title VII, you go through the EEOC. And so there's a waiting period involved there before you're actually allowed to file the lawsuit. So you have to go through uh, a lot of administrative law stuff with Title VII, whereas it sounds like with Section 1981, you can just go straight to court. Exactly. There's also no damages cap with Section 1981. So there's been some pretty large damages awarded under that. Uh, Give me me an example of that. What are some of the uh, damages that have been we've seen in, in this other statute? Yeah, last year we saw a uh, $70 million award for nine Black Glow Network employees and a white coworker um, who alleged race bias and retaliation, and it was filed under 1981. That's a pretty big uh, chunk of change there. Um, I guess that sort of begs the question, why isn't everyone filing suit under Section 1981? Why do people still use the newer Title VII? Uh, what are, there must be some reason why we haven't seen this type of litigation a lot in the past when it comes to civil rights. Yeah, I think one part of it is that when you go through the EEOC, there's still a chance to resolve things before it gets to the point of a lawsuit. But also, there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to 1981, specifically in these cases with standing. Um, That's an issue that these lawsuits might face, given that they're not able to point to any one specific person who's been affected by these programs. So it's more uncharted territory, whereas it's because we've had a lot of Title VII lawsuits in the past or Title VII cases, we, we it seems like that's a more predictable statute. Is that what I'm hearing? For the most part, yeah. Although the past couple of years and, and over time recently, there has been a couple lawsuits dealing with um, what Ed Bloom's lawsuits are dealing with, which is bias against specifically white employees. Yeah. 
What do you think the implications of this are? Or is the case law for Section 1981 claims, is that going to be fleshed out a lot more as a result of this? Or what do you, I mean, are there like broader implications for the law here? Yeah, I think so far these cases, uh, though they've come in a bit of a flurry, haven't marked a very large increase in 1981 cases just based on what we've seen so far. But that doesn't mean we're not going to see that in the future. And they certainly seem to indicate that we will especially after the Supreme Court's decision. And more than that, I think just the filing of the cases we've been told is enough for people to take a step back from DEI and re-examine what they're looking at with law firms in the private sector and overall. Well, that leads me very nicely into the last thing I wanted to ask, and I want to bring Tatiana back into this. Um, You did a story about DEI officers and DEI departments at law firms. And it sounds like uh, it's not a great time to have be in that line of work um, that, you know, for a number of reasons, one of them being all this sort of very complex, very uncertain litigation. We're seeing a lot of turnover in the DEI offices at these firms. W- what's going on there? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, this latest litigation is a very new development that sort of makes this really complex dynamic even more complicated to navigate for DEI leaders at law firms. I think generally, and this is just sort of what my sources have been telling me, law firms are very sort of risk averse. This is sort of why we've seen Gibson Dunn and Morrison Forster, you know, change their language on their sites. It's because, you know, they want to avoid any ripples (laughs) internally, externally. So as a DEI leader at a law firm in a role that is very, very new, you know, many law firms are still trying to figure it out. You know, a source described it as a catch-22, right? So you're hired, you know, you want to prove that you're the right candidate for this position. And, you know, you want to go out of the gate running. However, (laughs) you are in a risk averse environment um, where, yes, there may be an appetite for change, but the pace of that needs to be so particular. (laughs) And there just can be a lot of, I think, office politics. There are hierarchies. You know, lawyers are time short. You know, they're focusing on their cases. And then you have to sort of tell them, hey, I need you to make more time for this. Um, And it's a very hard ask. So it's already a difficult job to begin with, um, you know, especially given the cultures of most law firms. But now we have a situation where, oh, and also uh, based on a recent SCOTUS ruling, we're not even sure that your job is legal or that like you can, you know, actually do this. Uh, So that's got to add a whole other layer of like stress and, and uncertainty. Right, right. And I think even before this, DEI leaders in many aspects were already having to make the case for their job. And now this latest litigation, I think, makes it even more difficult. Yeah. All right. Well, that was uh, Tatiana Monet and Riddy Seti talking with us about big law, DEI, and where we're heading there. Uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Yeah. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Special thanks today to Matthew Schwartz. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. 
I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.